welcome to Stu's EV Universe, where you can find anything and everything electric vehicle. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Chelsea Sexton to the podcast. Chelsea was there in the very beginning, uh, part of a small and tight-knit group that were working on the GM EV1. Thank you so much for joining me, Chelsea. Thanks for letting me crash your party. Yeah, yeah. This is a thrill for me, and I guess maybe the best place to start is the beginning. Can you tell me, you were, uh, if I am uh, correct, you were a, a teenager when you started working at GM. Very close. I started selling cars for Saturn at 17 and then moved over to the EV1 program at 20. Okay. And Saturn, uh, I remember that was one of the cars that I remember my, my parents buying. Uh, my dad was very excited about the Saturn. <laughs> I think it was something about the, uh, the no-dent doors. Yes. yes. Yeah, no, it was a very popular brand at the time. Um, I mean, it, it, it was a, you know, they had great longevity with the plastic panels and all those sorts of things. Uh, but at the same time, it also was an incredibly customer service oriented brand. Right. Very community into co-creation, family barbecues, the whole thing, which actually made it kind of ideal when the EV1 came along, which was, you know, this electric car that intended for folks that you know had some money and were probably a little bit older than the normal Saturn folks. And it, originally it was intended that the EV1 go to Cadillac, but at the end of the day, they wanted to go with the brand that was known for introducing new ideas to the market and this great customer service experience and all of those things were a better fit for a whole new type of, of vehicle propulsion. And so the EV1 ended up landing with Saturn. Now, can you tell me a little bit about that uh, that group that worked on the EV1 as far as how many people were involved and um, what, what kinds of things you did specifically? Yeah, I mean, the program itself, all the engineers and everybody were probably 400 people or so, which is not very many for a car program in the grand scheme. Those of us that were responsible for deployment of the vehicle, it was about a dozen kids. <laughs> and by kids, I mean folks in their early to mid-20s, generally speaking that were out in the market areas, California and Arizona, tasked with actually putting the cars on the road. And right. so at the time, there was not very much siloing the way there is today with respect to being a policy person or a product planner or you know, marketing or whatever the case is. And so that meant that we not only worked with all the customers, but we trained all the dealers and we wrote a lot of the training and we uh, created the brochures and worked at the marketing events, taught the DMV how to register an electric car for the first time, uh, ended up writing a lot of the incentives and working with policymakers to get the tax credits and stuff that we take for granted today. So it was a really cool time, very heady, very optimistic very much feeling like we were changing the world at the outset of our careers. And, and we got to learn a lot of things with more breadth than sometimes uh, seems to exist today, which was a great foundation for all that followed. Now, it's hard to believe, but uh, this is the 25th anniversary year of the EV1. Uh, it was first produced in 1996 uh, and ran through 1999. Approximately how many vehicles were produced in that time? There were about 1,137. <laughs> About, okay. <laughs> yeah, not that we counted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were made through about 1999, and we the last leases came in sort of 2002, 3. Okay. So it was about a six-year program, give or take, at the end of the day. 
And the uh, number of vehicles still around, uh, there was, uh, uh, they, they very famously went in and they uh, disposed of the vehicles, but they, there were a few that uh, kind of escaped. Yes. <laughs> there were between probably 30, 30 to 40 that were partially gutted and donated to museums and universities. And many of those are still around today, can be seen in various parts of the country. And there were indeed a, a couple that got away that I'm still not sure GM knows about. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Um, now, for back in the day, I mean, we're talking 96 to 99, um, these were very technically advanced vehicles. Um, the mileage range um, was, it got better through the years. What, what did it start out at and what did it end at as far as the battery and the mileage range? Yeah, I mean, the first ones were rated at 70 to 90 miles, but realistically were more like 50 to 70 real world miles. Uh, and then our Gen 2 had two different battery flavors. And so the lead acid cars in the Gen 2, which were actually my favorite, they were made by Panasonic, they were about 120 to 40 miles of real-world range, not, not label rating. And then the nickel metal hydride was about 160 or so. So yeah, they were pretty advanced and had almost twice the range by the end that the first cars of this new EV generation had. But they also were the first sort of drive-by-wire, steer-by-wire, regen braking, uh, all sorts of, of interesting features that we take for granted today. The EV1 was really a pioneer for many of those technologies. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about, you know, 150 or 160 miles of range in 1999. That's, that's huge. Yes. I mean, my uh, 2011 uh, Nissan Leaf, uh, I think we're, I'm lucky if I'm getting 75 to 80, 85 miles, uh, and that's a 2011. So I'm kind of curious, I mean, you know, where would GM be now if, if you know, they took a different course? Uh, you know, it's kind of, of course, it's speculation, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, that is the great question anymore. It's not that, um, I mean, I don't really get into the, the shaming of GM for killing the car, but I think that there's certainly an awareness of what could have been. And I think even many of the folks in GM sort of see that now, both with respect to the, the vehicle technology itself, but also with respect to the, the passion of the drivers and the culture. And you know, a lot of the cultiness that, that Tesla gets credit for today and their rabid fandom actually started with EV1 and to some degree applies to all electric cars. I mean, there's some of that as well. So certainly they lost a fair bit of traction, but a couple of silver linings exist in that they did continue to work on power electronics, particularly figuring that whether it's hybrids or hydrogens or whatever the case is, that they would need advanced power electronics. And so that was one thing that enabled them to go a bit faster when they decided they wanted to bring out the Volt and get back into EVs again. There also was a fair amount of battery work that had gone on and was carried over from EV1 right down to the shape of the battery pack went into the Volt. So there were at least a few things that continued to, to happen internally that I think helped them quite a bit, but there's no question that they had a 10-year lead that no longer exists. Well, and GM also has 
in a way kind of taken the hit um you know Toyota and Honda also were part of that let's dispose of these vehicles after the lease <laughs> group and people don't necessarily think of them uh, in that regard you know and I think I spoke to Ed Begley Jr. And, and he put it very nicely he said oh you know GM got a black eye and these other automotive companies saw that and they didn't want to get a black eye so um, they kind of reversed course uh, after a little while um, maybe maybe some of the reason you see some of those uh, early RAV4 probably not very many of them, but still, you know, in, out, out on the road. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's, I think there's some truth to that. But I'll also say that there were a half dozen automakers, three American, three Japanese that were involved in that era of EVs in the 1990s. And all of them essentially ended their programs. And the two primary differences were that a couple of them had always sold a few of their models. So when we started doing, you know, protests and vigils and things to try to save more of those programs, the models from those programs, it wasn't a giant deal to let a few other people keep their cars since they'd already sold a few. So they didn't reverse course so much as just, you know, throw a bone, I think, to a few of the activists. Right. But at the same time, you know, there was a huge difference in the passion for the EV1 versus the other ones, in part because it was just... I mean, it was a cooler car, and, right. and yeah, I'm a little biased, <laughs> but, but it wasn't a conversion of, a, of an existing pickup truck or SUV. I mean, it was a, a ground-up model, and it was one of the only ones that was actually leased to consumers versus just fleets. So there was more of that individual passion with respect to the EV1 to begin with than some of the other models. Now, I mean, we're, you know, 25 years later. I mean, do you think, you know, does time heal the wound? I, you know, I know there's, there's a, I remember back to, you know, we have Evolve KY, which is our electric car group here in Kentucky. And I remember speaking to one of our members early on in, in the early years of the group. And uh, he had a Nissan Leaf, and we talked about, oh, you know, why did you get the Leaf? And he was in college, and he took an ethics class, and they showed the film Who Killed the Electric Car. And he said that really opened his eyes. He, at that point, he really wanted an electric car, and he really knew that it wasn't going to be a GE, a GM product. So, you know, that was a number of years ago, but I, I'm wondering if there are people that are still uh, kind of steadfast in in that or uh, is you know are folks forgiving you know uh, we like I like to think that people learn from their mistakes and um, you know take the the road eventually yeah uh, hopefully for the right reasons um, but I'm just kind of curious about that yeah there's there's certainly both there are absolutely the people that will never buy another GM car again because of what because EV1 right so I mean a few that had EV1s mostly people that never had them to begin with but saw the movie and and sort of feel that way and others have seen GM come back and and have gotten the Volt or the Bolt or something else and and you know were introduced one of the things that GM did well when it when it decided to get back into this with the Volt, the plug-in hybrid version, is that they 
they initially, I think, had a bit of arrogance of like, we'll just toss a car out there and the world will love it. And of course, they encountered a huge amount of skepticism. And their choice at the time was to dig in and commit to engaging. And so, you know, they reached out to a lot of us and said, you know, we get it. We're, we'll try to prove it to you. And they were very communicative at the time. And they, we did all sorts of little funky ride and drives. And, and they would call me up and say, hey, we're going to have a, a car in your area on this date. Round up, you know, a dozen or so people that you think should come talk to us, former EV1 drivers or whatever. And I would get the, you know, we'd convene in some parking lot. It was this sort of grassrootsy kind of effort. And, and you know, I invite folks that love their EV1s and folks that had access to grind still, and it was kind of a mixed audience, but the universal reaction after talking to the engineers and the folks involved were, oh my God, that's not the GM that killed my EV1, that's the GM that built it in the first place. I think we underestimate the degree to which this era of the EV market, the early adopters, which we're still firmly in and will be for a while, very much resonate to the other people involved and the sense of co-creation of the success of this technology versus a faceless brand. And so whether it's GM or anybody else, where companies have walked down that path of a conversation versus a marketing pitch, <laughs> they tended to get a bit more grace. Right. There are also those that will never forgive. Um, and I, I mean, I get it on some level. I don't, I don't share that. And I think to some degree, there are no angels in the automotive industry, including some of these startup brands that are very popular. <laughs> and, and I would prefer that whether people ever buy another GM car or a Ford or whatever the case is, that they base it at least on more recent decisions, not ones that are 25, 20 years old. So if someone says to me, I don't want to buy a GM EV because they sided with EPA and tried to fight CARB in the last few years, that makes more sense to me as a, as a logical choice than something that people that are no longer there did 20 years ago. Right, right. Now, uh, you talked a little bit about technologies that have kind of um, continued on uh, that that saw uh, you know its first application in the EV1. Were there some technologies, some uh, kind of uh, advanced things that were in the EV1 that haven't continued uh, that were kind of cool? Yeah, I think you've watched the fully charged video. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, last year, one of the last things we did before pandemic struck uh, was that we towed an EV1 from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma right. to Austin, Texas for the Fully Charged Live. And so since I had access to it, I, I tried to make a little video that covered a lot of those technologies. And there certainly are a couple. I mean, at the time, uh, keyless entry was kind of a thing with the buttons. Not yes. the, it wasn't quite yet for the fobs. But it had both the keyless entry and keyless ignition, which was kind of cool and fun. Um, so you just punch in a five-digit code to both get into the car and start the car. It was super handy for people like me and servicing because we could we had the master code list and we could go move any cars. And so we did fun customer service-oriented things like move cars around on chargers at the LAX airport so that we could make sure everybody was charged by the time they got back from their trips and things like that that were facilitated by this one little tech feature. But the one I loved the most, um, and I, Hyundai I know has, has repurposed it a little bit, but I'm surprised hasn't made it into to more EVs, was the battery recovery button, which was super simple, but it was just a button under the dashboard that if you manage to leave your headlights on or otherwise kill your 12-volt aux battery, as happens sometimes in cars, you could 
used your key to get into the car and push this button and it would recharge your 12 volt battery off full pack that's in the car. And so it was one of those things you almost never needed, but the one time you needed it, it was so darn cool because you never had to call AAA and just those sort of basic peace of mind types of features that examines, you know, now that we have these other technologies in the car, how could we use them for practical, you know, user experience good uh, was some of the cooler thinking at the time. We also had to fight with the engineers to convince them people wanted cup holders. So it goes both ways. <laughs> oh, that's that's too funny. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, the, that's really interesting because, um, you know, with like this electric vehicle group that we have here, a lot of times I'm the point person if someone's having a problem with their car. I'm, I'm sure. You're well known in that region. Okay, good, good. good. Yeah. I mean, you're known out here for being the person in that oh, that's, region. That's really, that's that's great to hear. Um, yeah, but I mean, like folks, Nissan Leaf, you know, it's my, my car is freaking out. Right. I can't start it. All these lights are on. What do I do? And... EVs are beautiful. They they don't have a lot of things that go wrong with them, uh, almost nothing. Right. But that is something that will happen to you without notice, and it's a very simple fix, but you don't care that it's a simple fix if you can't move your car. Right. Um, so that would have been wonderful in these other, you know, other EVs to be able to, you know, easily charge up the 12 volt and you know that you can go get a battery yeah. and, and get it fixed. And it's a relatively inexpensive fix, uh, but you're not left stranded somewhere. Yeah. Well, and generally speaking, you wouldn't even have to necessarily replace the battery depending on how dead it actually was. Right. Just like, just like a internal combustion car quite often once you get it started and you run it for a bit it's it's pretty fine it kind of comes back right so yeah that was a, a very cool feature and i'm kind of surprised that all evs today doesn't have don't have it although there's some i mean i talked to to the gm engineers when the volt came out and kind of said um why wouldn't you do this and they they said to me well you know it's impossible to kill a 12 volt battery anymore because everything's on timers and you know the dome lights and the headlights and all these things it's impossible to leave them on un un unintentionally and I think about two weeks later, Bill Nye killed the 12 volt battery in his vault. <laughs> so oh, yeah. he had there one on go. loan at the time. So it was like, see guys, we're not crazy. Uh, but the EV1 also had this coast down button that was very cool. It was just a, a thumb button on the, on the shifter and it would remove all regen, which was really nice. Now there's paddle selectors and different things for different levels of regen. Right. This was much simpler in its, in its uh, implication. It just would remove it. And so if you're coasting along on the freeway and don't want to slow the car down and don't want to create that resistance and want to extend the, the coasting range, you just thumb the button off and on. And so that was a thing that the drivers actually really loved because it aided their efficiency, but it wasn't overly complicated. And some always left it on, some always left it off, and some loved to play with it. <laughs> and so it was very customizable. Right. Uh, and it's another one of those things that today I'm a little surprised doesn't exist on more EVs, although I am glad to see more, more selectable regen in terms of two or three different uh, levels of it. But the EV1 had pretty strong regen for its time. I mean, even for today, it had strong regen closer to Tesla than some of the other ones, I would say. Uh, and the drivers loved it, but there are cases where it's not the most efficient mode. Now there was uh, the windshield uh, would defrost itself uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, having, my wife has a 2012 Chevy Volt with a V and, uh, the, you know, I, it's a source of frustration because 
I'll have to put on the defroster all the time, which I know is, you know, using up power. And it's just like on and off, on, off. And because it, it fogs up pretty easily and quickly. Can you talk about the windshield? Uh, that, yeah. To my knowledge, that hasn't been used anywhere else. No. And that, so at the time we had an electrically heated windshield and that there was a film in the glass that would heat the windshield electrically rather than using a conventional defroster. Because it was more efficient, it also ran off a 48-volt system rather than the 12 or the 300 or so volts that the traction pack was. Right. So it was a separate system, and it was incredibly handy. It was more efficient. It was very effective. It cleared out right away. Um, but I'm sure it was more expensive than conventional systems, and it did have some quirkiness to it in that... It, you could get hot spots in that film and it would crack the glass. So from a long-term maintenance perspective, we didn't have a lot of issues with it, but I, I'm not incredibly surprised to not see more of it today. We also had the first automotive use of a heat pump in the EV1 hmm. rather than a conventional HVAC system. And it too worked really well, especially in the in the more temperate climates. It certainly isn't or wasn't that version of it wasn't the most ideal in Michigan snow, but out in California where you're not dealing with the extremes as much, it worked great. I am a little surprised that we haven't seen more um, innovation on that HVAC angle of things. And I hear about it all the time today on, especially on larger vehicles, on, on electric school buses and, and uh, trailers and things like that, that there hasn't been enough effort put into some of the systems like that. Um, and the supply chain opportunities that exist today are a very common topic in my world right. uh, because those right. are the things that are the most consumptive of the of the accessory features. So, you know, the thing that will affect your range in an EV the most is always going to be your right foot. <laughs> but number two is basically the HVAC and the climate controls and things like that. And that's an opportunity to create more efficient systems. And some have done, that's part of why we've, we've seen um, seat heaters in some EVs that now their seat heaters are more standard in general across vehicles. But earlier on, when it was more of a premium feature, you'd also end up seeing them in EVs because it's more efficient to heat the person in the seat rather than trying to heat the whole cabin. So there was some of that thinking that's coming along the way. Right, and, and the LEAF, I think, starting in 2012, had seat heaters all around. <laughs> Right. You know? Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so that, that was like, and, and a heated steering wheel. I mean, I, I had a 2011, so I actually had to have a, 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 a club member put in heated seats in the front because I was spoiled. I've, you know, I, I wanted that. Yeah. Um, but man, you know, from 2012 on the Nissan Leaf to have seat heaters for you and all of your passengers, right. as well as a heated steering wheel, uh, especially in colder places, was a, a welcome, welcome thing. So. Yeah, absolutely. But it, but there was an efficiency reason behind that choice as right. well. Right. So, you know, one one uh, stone, many birds. <laughs> that's, that's right. Now, the EV1, I think it's safe to say, uh, has kind of achieved this kind of cult-like status. Um, I mean, what do you think are the reasons for that? And I guess kind of fast forwarding to today, I mean, has any other electric vehicle um, come close to to that? Well, I mean, Tesla's the one that everybody assumes started it all <laughs> when it comes to right. EV love. But certainly that existed on, on EV1 before. And right. I, I often take the view that 
we all stand on the shoulders of others, whether it was us EV1 kids that inherited this dream of 400 engineers and the folks that came before us and so on and so forth. Elon talks about having been somewhat inspired by the passion people had for their EV1 when he was getting into Tesla. So there's none of these things exist in a vacuum, but I think we still vastly underestimate the degree to which all EV drivers feel like they're helping to co-create the success of this technology. Nobody buys a gas car and feels like they're helping to create the success of internal combustion. Right. But across brands, most EV drivers feel that way, and they can be really protective of both the vehicles, but the companies and the people that are engaged in this. There is this sense of like, we're all in it together for the most part. And that will pass as we get to mainstream, but the early adopter phase goes through about 13, 14% of market penetration and nationwide, we're still at about 2%. Right. So we have a ways to go. And I think there's too much assumption that, oh no, we're past those early people. I mean, folks verbally pat me on the head all the time. They're like, oh yeah, you're little people, Chels. <laughs> like, well, these guys are the ones that, that dig in and help create the success of your, of your vehicles and your programs. And they really, really appreciated how much at the time, the General Motors leadership and staff and everybody, A, really tried to make sure they had a good experience. B, really had that sort of Saturn-like, we're all in this together, teamwork kind of aspect. And they formed owners clubs and the leadership would come out and talk with them. We threw annual birthday parties for all of the drivers, which is why to this day we think of the anniversary as December 5th, because it's the day the we put the first EV1s in customers' hands and the day on which every year that followed, we had a birthday party party for them. Wow. So there was all of those sorts of just very small but thoughtful features of being an EV1 driver that helped really create this culture around it. And we'd make cakes for them when they got their car. Like all sorts of goofy things happened. In addition to this, like running folks around at LAX and making sure their cars were charged. We wrapped what was a really nice experience around what was a fairly experimental car, especially in that first generation when at the end of the day, it didn't have the range we hoped it would. And there were things that went wrong on the car as happens with all early programs and infant issues and things like that. But we really worked our butts off to make sure that when those things happened, everybody was still taken care of. And that carried forth as a thing that happens with EVs. It's the overall experience of having the car. It's not just the car itself. And that's a disconnect from most of what exists today in vehicle deployment and car marketing and stuff. Yeah, that's 100% true. And I mean, just um, like advertising, you know, I, I mean, the advertising for the EV1 in, in some respects was was depressing and... and oh, it was mostly <laughs> terrible. Let's and, just call and, it what it is. I mean, the, the first ad, the, the George Lucas ad, which won an Emmy, I mean, that was very cute. The appliances all coming out to meet their friendly car. Right. But otherwise, most of the ads were apocalyptic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and intentionally so. I mean, there was... There's a fair amount of, of story and lore running around about um, the folks that created the different ad campaigns. And, you know, they'd line up several different ones for the GM meetings and they'd say, here's the one we recommend. And they sort of have them ranked. And the GM leadership would say, no, 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 we want this one at the bottom. Mm. Like there was, a, there was some subversive marketing involved. <laughs> and I see it still all the time where car companies are still kind of ambivalent about wanting to do EVs. And so there's some amount of going through the motions and wanting to look like they're into it without actually threatening existing car sales right. <laughs> by being too successful with EVs. And so 
there's a lot of halo marketing that happens, you know, more about the brand than trying to sell any particular car. And that's not just an EV thing, but it certainly has existed on EVs. And I think even some of the some of the sincere folks have gotten in their own way because we think about marketing EVs or talking to customers about EVs to way too pragmatically. And so most of the marketing that's existed to date is framed around why you should want one, all the practical reasons why, you know, it makes sense for the planet. And at the end of the day, cars are a, an emotional purchase. Right. And so we, and we don't, it's all emotional marketing when it comes to cars, except EVs. And we never talk about the experience of them being cool and fun to drive and convenient. And they, you know, you never have to rush out of your house 10 minutes early to get to work in the morning because you didn't feel like getting gas the night before because your car filled while you sleep. Right. And, you know, I have a, a, a mom in Atlanta who, who loves to tell me all the time that, you know, having an EV gives her an extra two hours with her young children at night because she gets to use the HIV lane. And... On one hand, yes, it's that nice incentive and privilege, but her experience of it is the time with her toddlers. <laughs> and we don't focus enough on those sorts of things, of, of the actual experience of having this car over another one. And uh, it's we, we get too much into selling spinach and not ice cream, <laughs> I guess, as Dean Devlin always puts it. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, um, and I guess the flip side of that is, I mean, like Plug in America, you know, Drive Electric Week, um, these chapters all over, uh, electric vehicle chapters all over the nation, and these people, grassroots people that are volunteers, uh, they, they don't have an agenda, they're not necessarily trying to sell you a car, although they'd be happy if you brought bought an EV. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't get a commission, <laughs> you know. Um, but they want to get you in the seat. Yeah. They want you to either drive their car or be a passenger in their car. And then they could really tell you the, the true story and they, they can show you the excitement, you know? Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the butts and seats thing started in the 90s. We, we figured out pretty quickly that the best way to get people to consider an electric vehicle was to let them experience one, whether as a driver or a rider. And so the ride and drive emphasis started way back when, uh, but universally then and since the reaction is, oh my God, it's just like a real car. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you put them in a Leaf or a Tesla, it's the same reaction. Oh my God, it's just like a real car because people expect that EVs are going to be really compromised and slow and sort of golf carty, et cetera. And the fact that they are like real cars and often better in some ways is lost on folks until they can experience it. Likewise, the plugging it at home for those that can, it takes a few days to figure out that, oh yeah, this really is that convenient. And you know, ranges are getting longer, but we also vastly overestimate what we need. We think we drive really far because we sit in traffic all the time. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's actually the reverse. And, right. and so letting people experience that in a low pressure environment, which is what all these wonderful ride and drives are and why I mean, the, the most heartening thing to me in the EV movement has always been the drivers and enthusiasts and sort of happy warriors, <laughs> whether owners or a few of them sprinkled throughout the companies involved, are helping sort of a mind at a time to move this along. And that has always been what has brought EVs forward and probably will be for the foreseeable future until the industry itself decides it wants to embrace this. It's always been up to the other stakeholders involved. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, um, I, I know I just spoke to Andy Sly, who's a YouTuber. And I mean, you know, as far as advertising, Tesla they don't spend money on advertising. So it's folks like him that can really promote the brand in a big way. Uh, it's these EV chapters that promote collectively the EVs in a big way. Um, and it's it's kind of like a family, you know? It, and uh, I, I know with my Leaf, I don't know if Tesla folks experience this as well. I kind of, in my mind, think that maybe they're just, you know, really focusing on getting to work when they're in their car. But um, with my Leaf, there's the leaf wave and especially now it's weird like our group here in kentucky has been around for seven or eight years and in the beginning we i think we had mostly leafs yeah now i you know i kind of joke that my my car is is uh kind of a collector <laughs> almost <laughs> uh you know you know what is that you know, I'll, I'll get that at the car wash. What is that? Oh, that's really cool. You know, um, because people are seeing these Teslas, hundreds of thousands of Teslas on the road. Right. Not obviously here in Kentucky. You know, we're, we're, we don't see nearly as many as, as you all can enjoy there. What what EVs have you owned uh, through the years? And, and how's, you know, how's that happened? Ironically, I, we've only owned one. Okay. <laughs> um, we got a Bolt last year, finally. Okay. Uh, so I've had the pleasure of getting to drive many EVs over the years, but yeah. in part, um, I've always tended to volunteer more time <laughs> than anything else, which doesn't always fund electric cars. Uh, but I also drive incredibly little. I mean, even before pandemic, I'm a one to 2000 mile per year driver. Right. So I still actually have my 20 year old Saturn. Yeah. That was the last car I bought when I still got the company discount. So it does maybe five miles a week. And that's that's about it. Um, I'm I'm one of those people that's actually on the verge of getting rid of my car, not necessarily replacing it with an EV. Right. And I think we, I think we get a little too too car centric in some of these things as well, where we need to think more holistically from the view of replacing fossil fuels with electrons in all forms of transportation, right. but that as in all reality, and especially like I'm out in Los Angeles, so it's a very different geographic conversation, but especially in the more urban areas, we need to think about more variety in the tools. You know, there's a lots of things where a bike or an e-bike or a, you know, transit is the ideal solution. And yes, you use a car occasionally, but you don't use it for all things because it's not always the most convenient option involved. And so as EV advocates, I, I'm constantly feeling like we need to broaden our advice and recommendation and our thought about providing access over necessarily personal vehicle ownership <laughs> all the time. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a great point because we're talking about EVs, not electric cars necessarily. Right. And that really encompasses a tremendous amount these days, more and more. Uh, I mean, every once in a while, I'll see someone, believe it or not, even around here on like an electric unicycle, which <laughs> <laughs> I think is like the nuttiest thing, but coolest thing at the same time. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have the guts. To, I, I did try to get on one of those and, and was not very successful. Oh, I, yeah. I, I would know. break an arm right away. <laughs> but yeah, you have, you know, that's maybe one extreme, but you have the Segway type vehicles. You have electric bikes. You have electric motorcycles. You have scooters that for better or for worse are everywhere. Yeah, and part of this is a housing and urban planning conversation. You know, the, I mean, pr purposely, we live in a very walkable town and have made that choice right. <laughs> for many years. Um, and that's part of why I just don't drive that much. But I, I think we have to be 
careful about meeting people where they are and walking them toward all of this rather than pushing a single solution as the right tool for every job. Right. And we get in the same same boat when we talk about charging, sort of faster is always better and more networked is always better and all of these fancy features that, yeah, are nice to have and they can be crucial in some cases, but they also only add cost in some cases. And I mean, I love... I'm I'm well-known supporter of, of Kitty Adams and Adopt-A-Charger in part because she's just lovely in general. You, she's infectious in her enthusiasm. Yes, but she's yes. always supported places that don't need the fanciest charging, often have gotten sort of short shrift treatment by some of the major networks because they're public parks or they're not the major metros that are in the top 10 of EV sales or whatever the case is. And she's really good about walking in with agnostic solutions and saying, hey, for your particular situation, a non-networked, relatively cheap charger is actually the perfect solution here. You don't need to do more than is required at this stage. It's better to give people reliable, affordable, accessible charging that they can see and is visible than worry about the fanciest tool for all jobs. So we get really narrow sometimes. We're so deep into the weeds that we forget the bigger picture, whether it's the vehicles or the charging or the marketing of them and how we talk about them because we're so used to having to be defensive and we don't have to be and we get in our own way a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think that's... You know, I, I sometimes feel like a broken record because I do often, you know, because one of the things we do is our adopt a charger program here. Yeah. And, and we've, I think to date we've had uh, put chargers at 36 sites, uh, 82 level two chargers uh, in and around Kentucky. And often I get, oh, well, what about, you know, swiping a card and collecting some money? And it's like, I feel like I have to, you know, bring people down <laughs> from, from that, talk them down. Yeah. Um, uh, that you know, because I it would physically make me sad well, to yeah. see a a charger like that, you know, a pay per use charger that is, you know, I'm not saying that there's no use for those uh, for level two ones, but uh, often it, it's not needed, right? And 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 not a good solution. And what happens is it ends up not being used. Yeah. So it's a very expensive thing for the host, uh, the site, and uh, it's not used, and that just tells a, a terrible story, you know, to folks that are passing by. Yeah. So it's always like this education piece, I feel, you know? Yeah. What's interesting, I mean, a thing that GM never really got credit for in the 90s is that they actually paid about half of all the public charging that went out into the world. Right. So the Air Resources Board and a few other agencies helped chip chip in some money, but but GM funded about half the public charging, even stuff that wasn't just for them. Wow. Because they were, just like today, there was two different systems, and so the automakers each split on which ones they'd align around. So the one that we used on EV1 was also used by Toyota and Nissan, and then um, Ford and Honda and Chrysler went with a different one. And so GM funded about half of, of all of ours, at least, um, and some of the uh, some of the make readies for the other ones. Right. And so that meant by by definition, all of us also had contractors licenses, and we helped put them all in, and, and all of these things. And at the time, we had card swipe chargers, uh, and we were experimenting with sort of 25 kilowatt faster stuff. But universally, the sites, Ralphs, Hilton, whoever, would say to us. Yeah, we don't want to do that. We'd rather have someone drive past Vons and come to Ralph's or Kroger and give them 25 cents worth of electricity to do so right. than try to monetize this stuff. Right. We think of it as an amenity. 
which is still very much how it's treated today in a lot of cases. And sort of that's the Volta model. It's ad sponsored. I mean, so is Kitty's at the end of the day, adopt a charger, sponsored charging that's free. Right. But it is treated as an amenity at a place that gets you to be more willing to go there. And it's well demonstrated that EV drivers prefer to support retailers and sites that they feel like supports them by providing charging or at least having it available even if at cost. But it's part of that we're all in this together. So they favor the retailers and folks that get involved in this too. But there is just not that much money to be made no. on charging. Certainly not on level two, two you know, 240 volt uh, longer dwell time charging. And definitely not level one, which is still, I think, great. And, you know, 120 volt outlets at long term parking lots and airports, there are places for that, even as it tends to be maligned a lot of the time. Right tool for the job, right speed for that type of location is the way to think about it. And it does concern me the degree to which we are obsessed with faster charging always being better, especially for apartment dwellers and disadvantaged communities and places like that, because it's inherently asking those with the fewest resources economically to rely on the most expensive charging in our ecosystem. And there's lots of attention being paid to making sure a certain percentage of the installation goes into those communities, which is important, but just as important, if not more so, are real talk conversations about how to make it affordable to use, or else any of it is just stranded assets. Right, right. And and I mean, I'm kind of baffled, you know, yeah, the, the, I totally agree. And, and like the speed, you know, is, uh, speed of the vehicles, the speed of charging, uh, the range of charging, all really um, folks talk about that a lot. And personally, I would love to see a vehicle out there that is perhaps similar to like the Nissan Leaf, perhaps styled a little bit more, uh, a little differently, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because that, that uh, isn't in quite sexy anymore. <laughs> the Gen 2 is better. The newer one. <laughs> better. Yeah, newer one's better. But uh, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I just saw Mazda just came out with a EV. I think it was like a hundred mile range for about 35 grand or something. Yeah. And I'm like scratching my head and thinking, what is going on here? Uh, All that tells me is they don't want to sell very many. Right. That's a compliance right. car. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> Full stop. Here's our car, you know. Um, and but but what would be wonderful is if a automaker came out with a hundred or a hundred and fifty mile vehicle, uh, even a hundred mile vehicle That's that cheap. was for around town. I know. That was inexpensive and a compelling vehicle to own yeah um and for the families which are probably most of the families out there and people out there that once or twice a year they need something for a long trip yeah so they could borrow a car or rent a you know go to a rental place absolutely um, and yeah i mean everyone's obsessed with more more and longer range but i have i'm a hundred percent in agreement and have always been a proponent of you know, lower range, urban commuter, whatever you want to call them, EVs that are increasingly affordable. I mean, I drove a, Mits- a right-hand drive Japanese prototype Mitsubishi IME mm-hmm. for four years right? because I'm near their headquarters and they had some extra ones laying around and they kind of came to me and said, yeah, we've devalued these so much. They're considered about a dollar's worth of, of an asset. Right. Um, and you help us all the time. We never pay you. So if you'd like to drive this around locally for a while and help us exercise them and stuff, that's great. And for me, in the five mile and a week driving I do, it was perfect. It, I mean, it, it is a 60 mile, the most analog, yes. kind of dorky <laughs> EV. It definitely is not right. the thing for everybody. But day to day basis, it was fine. And, and we get 
I mean, I get it from the psychology of automotive marketing. People buy SUVs every single day that almost never put more than one person in them, yeah. but just in case they want to carry the soccer team, right. then that's why they buy the car. Right. And it's the same thing with EVs and range. But to this point of access and affordability, I think there's potentially more opportunity for uh, shared access uh, EVs and, and cars that, you know, even two years ago pre-pandemic may not have been economically viable, but now more and more people are going, you know, I, even if I need a car sometimes, I don't necessarily need it every day because I'm not commuting every day and everything else. So that I think has some opportunity as well as smaller vehicle. I mean, it's not, it's not to your point, the price, it's still 35 grand, but right. I mean, I lust after the Honda E. <laughs> Yeah. It's never going to be available here. I love the, the, the new Hyundai subcompact that's being talked about, the Mitsubishi Nissan K-Car uh, reintroduction. None of those will come to the U.S., and they're exactly the EVs that people like me want. Right. Because I don't need a big car. I'm never going to carry the soccer team. No, right. So, right. And especially in an urban area, I don't want to deal with parking a giant vehicle. Now, uh I'm just kind of curious. I, I know that you recently did some work for Fully Charged, uh, which is really, really cool. Um, what are you doing these days? I am. I, I, Chelsea has taken a full-time job, which, which surprises everybody because I haven't had a single one in forever. I've had lots of little jobs. Yep. Uh, I now am an advisor to the Department of Energy, okay. specifically on the Loan Programs Office, okay. which is best known for having provided manufacturing loans to uh, Tesla and Nissan and Ford about a dozen years ago. And we have two primary programs as well as one that supports tribal energy projects and more than $40 billion ready to deploy for advanced vehicle manufacturing and all of its related components and materials and critical minerals and batteries and all those things but also the deployment of innovative energy projects. So, you know, even without any potential expansion from Congress or anything being talked about in the Biden administration, we have this very cool existing opportunity to put some put a huge amount of capital to work to move all of these things forward. So, I was asked to put my time where my mouth is for <laughs> where it's been for the last couple decades and try to help. And so here I am. A bunch of us have, have gotten sucked into these efforts, which is, it's an amazing period of time right now where so many folks are working from different angles to try to move things forward. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, because um, there's been many years where it's been, I think, frustrating as put it mildly, um, in, in the EV space and, yes. <laughs> you know, everybody would say, Oh, you know, five, give it five, give it five years, you know, right. five, 10 years, you know, and I have one person that I, I talked to years ago, um, in the auto automobile world and we would have these, you know, friendly, but passionate debates. And he'd be like, Oh, you know, yeah, you and your Nissan Leaf and electric vehicles, they're never going to be a thing. And he, I, he's still there, you know, he's still doing that. Yeah. And he's like, uh, you know, electric vehicles, they'll never have a battery that'll go through. 300 miles, you know, yep. and now I can kind of put that in his face and say, what, what, I remember this conversation we had, you know, um, you know, you were saying, oh, EVs aren't going to happen because the technology is not going to be there. You know, it, it never can happen. There are these, you know, restraints that are built into the, you know, nature's laws, <laughs> you know, uh, right. <laughs> and it's, so it's like, and, and he still won't kind of give in. 
You know, he's like, oh, it's never going to be. So it's it's really nice. It, it seems like we're we're turning a corner. I mean, what are your feelings as far as the future? Uh, I agree with you. I think we're still like in this early adopter thing. But I do see, you know, especially being involved in our, our EV chapter here, we have so many people buying Teslas. Yeah. And it's gone from, I always say we have an eclectic electric group, you know, people... Uh, especially perhaps here, you know, they, they get into it for different reasons. Uh, perhaps in the very beginning, it was fast, you know, majority was environmental reasons, you know, and social reasons. But now people are like, oh, uh, you know, the Tesla is a cool car. It goes fast. So we have a lot of Tesla owners. Uh, it's almost it's almost a Tesla club. Right. And I'm almost I'm feeling pressure for people like, why do you still have that? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll go to these ride and drives and I'll just kind of stand there by myself. Right. You know, no, uh, yeah. for a lot of the time. But then I'll start talking to people. And I'll be like, you, you know, a lot of people think still that, oh, you know, I can't afford an EV, but there's this used car market now, and there are perfectly capable EVs out there that will do what you need them to do yeah. and, and be beneficial to society. Yeah, and they're 10 grand or less sometimes. Yeah, I right. mean, I think there's, what's interesting is that even out here, I mean, look, California is far more libertarian than it yes. it gets credit for everyone assumes it's like this super progressive blue state and yet the people within it mm, not entirely so right. you know environmentalism has always been the smallest reason that people have adopted evs it's always the stereotype and it has never ever been true even in the 90s the number one reason anyone has ever adopted an ev started to drive one is because they're cool, they're fast, and they're fun. Right. It's it's the same emotional, psychological drivers of every other car purchase. The number two reason is the engineering and efficiency and sort of that angle of things. It comes in a few flavors. And then after that is more all the, the cause orientation, whether environmentalism or domestic energy or right. whatever the case is. So there's a, it's a kind of a Venn diagram, and the, none of them are mutually exclusive, but that's kind of it and we get we get a little too too I, I see more tribalism these days that bothers me around you know people shaming other EVs and stuff like that yeah. where I have yeah. I have leaf drivers that tell me that they they think their experience is like a Tesla off the line right. and I and I know the Tesla drivers all laugh at them but really what is the what's the value in disavowing them from that if that's their experience if right. their experience is it's cool and it's fast and it feels like a Tesla must feel right. awesome tear it up like what why are we trying to tell people that their EV choice isn't good enough? That's right. Wherever you start, it's a good thing. And yeah. there is no single car for everybody in the internal combustion world. There will not be in the EV world. And wherever people start is fine. Uh, the biggest step to get anyone to take is the first one. Right. After that, they only go increasingly electric. So I, I have the same feelings around everybody that craps all over plug-in hybrids in all their forms. I think for credit, we certainly need to drive towards better ones. Right. And I'm among a group of volunteers that has been working with researchers to define what should be considered good plug-in hybrids. And we're, we're making those recommendations to the Air Resources Board for the ZEV mandate because we know as more states get on board with that, they have opportunity to influence vehicle design in the market. So there's a lot of different things that are happening right now. And, and that's all good, all of these different efforts. And I think there's, there's good reasons for optimism. I'm also concerned about the complacency that I see. There's too much like, oh, it's a rolling snowball. It can't be stopped. It'll all take care of itself. We can all go off on holiday now and work on autonomous vehicles or something because electric is 
is, is done. Right. It's like, no, 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 no. There's so much more hard work. And if anything, I mean, we're, it's kind of a sophomore slump. We keep going back and forth between like the excitement of freshman year and, you know, I'll think all, lots of new things are happening versus the sophomore slump of in between all the vehicle announcements where like, this is just really hard work to do to get chargers in the ground and policy passed and all of this stuff that isn't as visible or sexy or fun looking, <laughs> but still has to be done to be successful. Yeah. And so, you know, in this, are we there yet? Is it going to be okay this time kind of conversation? I am of the persistent view that it is entirely up to all of us to decide if that's the case. It, we will only get there if we all decide to get there. Right. If, if, if it's a matter of assuming somebody else will come in and take care of it, we will be making the sequel to Who Killed the Electric Car at some point. There's no question. Well, that yeah, that I mean that's a really good point, and yeah, I, I of course want to talk about briefly about Who Killed the Electric Car and Revenge of Electric Car. Two wonderful movies. I, I just rewatched them. The the couple things that really stick out with to me are you at the funeral. I mean, obviously emotional about having to give this car back and thinking of the future with your child. You know, I mean that's something that a parent totally can get. And then there's the the scene where you know they're waiting for the the pickup truck, uh, you know, the the tow truck yeah. and the little girl with her electric, you know, uh Yeah, Peter Horton's daughters. Yeah, you know, her electric vehicle, her, her little toy electric vehicle that she's in. And and it, it's just such a brilliant thing because it it points to the future. And I was just really impressed. I mean, how fun and how perhaps quirky kind of, you know, California to have a funeral for a electric vehicle, you know. Yeah. But that just shows the passion. I mean, you know, the bagpiper right. <laughs> in the beginning and, and everybody dressed appropriately and, and the line of cars. And actually, you know, for those that are interested, I, I uh, spent too much time on YouTube. And uh, there actually is, I think, the funeral in its entirety on YouTube. Oh, yeah. It's there posted a few yeah, times. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a GM EV1 funeral or something like that uh, in like yeah. six parts. So, you you know, obviously movies and, and that format will pick and choose and, and they'll put in little snippets from different folks. But you could really see everybody and you could see everybody speaking, you know, their truth to this. Right. And it, it's just, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, part of me is wondering, do we still have that kind of passion? You know, 2021 right now, do we need that kind of passion or is it going to take a different form? Because I agree with you. I, I think we shouldn't be complacent and, and we have to almost push harder um, yeah. because I think the time when you let your guard down, that's the time when you're in danger. Right. No, I mean, I, I agree. I think the answers to those questions are yes to all of them. And yeah. I mean, what's funny is it's hard to convey the degree of deja vu that exists today versus the early days of, of EV1 in that era. There, at the time, the original business plan for EV1 was was many more units. I mean, it was mm -hmm. it, it would rival the Ford Mach-E today wow. in terms of its actual initial intentions. Right. So it, there was, at least for the first couple of years, not this sense of trying to fight against GM. It was very much, we just have to go out there and make this happen. It's a new thing, and that's why there's this bunch of young, enthusiastic kids behind it, because we, you know, we'll go out there with all our passion, and, and that'll be fine. And it's just, it, this is the start of all the things. 
things <laughs> was very much the sensation. And there's a lot of that that goes on today and, and has in fits and starts for the last decade of this EV generation. Yes, the volumes are different and things, but the right. sensation is not that different, which also says to me, as good as things feel, it doesn't mean they can't be stopped. Uh, and so there is that we have to keep with it. But I mean, the, what's interesting about the funeral and the film and how all that came about was how stunningly organic it was mm -hmm. and utterly unplanned. And I mean, it, what's ironic is I am one of the shyest people in our industry. And if anyone had said to me when I started that, here's your next 20 years, I would say, nope, not, not for me. <laughs> I, I'm going to go back in my hole behind the curtain. Thanks very right. much. Um, and so very much it happened because it was a day-by-day -day thing and you only had to make the next decision, not the long-term decision. Right. And the, the funeral was a total stunt. I mean, we knew it. There was not even a blip of a film idea at the time. It was just very much, you know, they're taking the cars back. We knew they would. It's certainly happening. But we thought, even if you think we're the crazy ones, where's PBS Frontline? Like, where there's some documentary or show or article or something would want to tell this story. Right. And that was, so that was the, the funeral intention. It was just, let's do something stupid as kind of a PR stunt, and the media will come cover it. And they did, but it was EV drivers bid fun, farewell, and get ready for hydrogen. And we just kind of went, oh, that is so not the story. Right. And so Chris Payne, who became the director of Who Killed, yeah. decided he wanted to, to make a film. And so we all dug in and agreed to help, and uh, and the rest is history, so to speak. Yeah. But certainly it was, I mean, as, as much as it was a stunt, we were standing there with, you know, Paul McCready, who's just an amazing, was an amazing human and pioneer of aviation right. in his own right. And I mean, all these various people that were inspiring for their work on it and that sense of legacy of all these original EV1 engineers that were there. And so, yes, it was emotional from the standpoint of our kids and their future, but also from the sense of obligation of those that came before and degree to which we had succeeded or not right. in honoring what they had handed to us. Right. And there is still that basic, uh, you know, dynamic involved in lots of ways. Well, this has been wonderful. I know, man, it's, it, this time has flown. I've really enjoyed this. Um, Likewise. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I, I mean, I, I don't want to no. <laughs> take up too much of your time. No, not I, specifically. I, I could go on for a while about all of this. So. I think we'll wear out your audience if we go any longer. Yeah, yeah. No, absolute pleasure, and uh, super appreciate you spending the time today. Absolutely, so. anytime. Thanks for all you're doing there. I appreciate it. S same to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stu's EV Universe. I would like to thank Eden Unger for creating the artwork and the music for this episode. Remember, please rate, review, subscribe, and share, as that's the only way we can continue to grow. Now you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash stewsevu. Remember, the EV revolution runs on your energy. I'm Stuart Unger. See you next time.